Yes, if you think about it, you could pray for that uh, family. Pastor Lance Quinn did the funeral uh, yesterday, and some of you know Pastor Murray. He was also asked to come there to Arkansas and to uh, minister there to the family, and they, they had to get a, a venue that um, a church that sat uh, had a seating capacity of 4,000 because it's such a trauma uh, there. In fact, um, they found a package addressed to the Tittle family. They found a package 80 miles away with a picture of the mother when she was a toddler, um, 80 miles away. They found a Bible and other things 30 miles away from the home. So it was a devastating, um, it was a devastating issue for them to deal with, and we pray and encourage you to pray that the grace of God will will undertake for them during these days. Difficult, difficult time. And admittedly, um, and I feel most uh, compassionate towards our people, because this is the second time um, in almost as many months, but admittedly, I am a poor substitute for our dear brother Lance Quinn. And um, prayerfully, we'll be able to see him join us for a future conference um, we would love to have him here. He's a dear brother. Those of you who, who know him, uh, we were looking forward to being together with, uh, with Dr. Lambert and, and having that uh, crew together. In fact, I, the first time I met um, Dr. Lambert was in Lance Quinn's office at the uh, Shepherds Conference a, a while back. So uh, while I readily admit then that uh, there certainly are better preachers than the substitute, I take comfort in knowing that there's no better word to be preached, right? And so we're thankful uh, for that. So we'll trust then in the Spirit of God, who uses weak instruments that Christ and His Word may be all the more exalted. If you take your Bible, please, and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And we're really just going to focus on the first uh, verse and just touch in way of application on the second verse But we'll read this whole psalm together. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates night and day. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the wicked wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. It's said that when the famous missionary, Dr. David Livingston, started his trek across Africa, he had 73 books in three packs weighing 180 pounds. And after they had gone 300 miles, Livingston was obliged to throw away some of his books because of the fatigue of those carrying all of his baggage. And as he continued on his journey, he was forced to do the same over and over, and his library began to shrink, growing less and less, until Livingston had but one book left, which he would not throw away, and that was his Bible. As counselors, prospective counselors, and even as counselees, I would say to you today that Livingston gives to us the right example, doesn't he? 
For at the end of the day, the Bible is the only book that we need, for its counsel is the safest counsel of all. So the Reformers had it right when so long ago they took up the cry of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. The Bible alone. As Christians, the fact that we find ourselves living in an age which questions not only the veracity of the Bible, but by extension, the usefulness of the Bible, uh, that is nothing new. We heard of that even in that first session this morning. But what is new is that more and more of those claiming to follow Jesus Christ are now the very ones who are questioning his word the most. We see that time and again, don't we? We see it in regard to the matter of creation. We see it in regard to the matter of salvation. And we certainly see it especially evident when we consider how it is that we are to counsel. This is the area that the Puritans rightly called soul care. As God's people, we all need then to be refreshed and encouraged about the preciousness and the precious word of God As biblical counselors, we need to be sure that we do not fall into the temptation to doubt the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God. The psalmist says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Now listen, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Psalm 138 and verse 2. You have magnified your word above all your name. So here we're told how highly God magnifies his own word. And therefore, Christians, how much more then should we not magnify the word of God? So we need to be reminded and encouraged in the word of God's truthfulness, the word of God's usefulness, and the word of God's power. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It alone can accomplish the purposes for which God intends. Thus does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is God's unaltered word which is most needful in the culture and in the church today. It is God's word which is most needed in the counseling office today. Why? Because it's God's word alone which is powerful enough to change the heart. Thus, we need more David Livingstons today, don't we? And may God raise up men who will refuse to throw away their Bibles. We're surrounded by many church leaders who are both explicitly and implicitly unloading their Bibles in favor of something or someone else. What is the next fad? What is the next thing that is supposed to help people. We see it in preaching. We see it in teaching. And again, brethren, we certainly see it in this ministry of soul care. And these leaders are encouraging those who follow them to do the same thing, to question the Bible, to question the usefulness of the Bible, to to say the Bible really doesn't speak to those things that as we heard in that first session, and, and certainly by God's grace, there'll be overlap today in what's, what's being said. But the Bible doesn't speak to those things that it, it says it addresses. Everywhere around us, it seems that the very ones charged with magnifying the word of God and lifting up the word of God are the ones who are capitulating to the prevailing winds of this current culture. 
Noting this trend in an article written for the Spurgeon Fellowship Journal, James Sweeney states, there's a growing consciousness of two dangerous trends in ministry today with regard to the Bible, both of which can be characterized as losing our grip on the essential authority and power we claim for ministry. First is the danger of not using the Bible at all, and second is the danger of making the Bible something other than it is. For example, in his newest book, A New Kind of Christianity, emergent church leader Brian McLaren writes that for the past millennia, Christians have been using the wrong hermeneutic in their interpretation of the scriptures. You weren't aware of that, were you? You didn't know that for the last 2,000 years we've been using the wrong hermeneutic. But don't you fear. Rest assured. Sit down and relax. Don't go anywhere. Because Brian McLaren has the answer. He says that his newest book now is the answer to writing these centuries of wrong scriptural interpretation. Whew. Are we ever thankful? Of course, he says that In our hermeneutic, we are incorrect to interpret the Bible as being the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and inspired word of God. Rather, he writes this, and I want you to listen to the hiss of the serpent in what I'm going to read to you, okay? I'm recommending we read the Bible as an inspired library. This inspired library preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing vigorous conversation with and about God, a living and vital civil argument into which we're all invited and through which God is revealed. After all, revelation doesn't simply happen in statements. It happens in conversations and arguments that take place within and among communities of people who share the same essential questions across generations. Revelation accumulates in the relationships, interactions, and interplay between statements. And so he views the Bible to be a slowly evolving human understanding of God. He says, Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils and layers of sentiment. Exactly. Exactly. The hiss of Satan. Now, we don't have time to unpack the statement today, the whole statement, but just recall that in Exodus, Moses didn't have a conversation with God and then attempt to give his best understanding of this conversation about God to the people. God told Moses what to say, and Moses went and said it. The canon of God's special revelation then is finished He isn't waiting for us to evolve more in our understanding of him so that he can tell us more. 2 Peter 1.3 is a verse that we return to often, isn't it, as biblical counselors, that God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness, and it's contained all in the understanding of who the person of Jesus Christ is and what he says. Rather, Jesus, the word of God, has already clearly shown us who he is in special revelation, and that special revelation is the word. And what is our responsibility then, brethren? Our responsibility is to submit ourselves to him. God tells us, and we bow our knee. Note then that the way of the false teacher is to always try to exalt man over God. 
the way of the Bible is to always have man exalt God. Now, certainly these dangers are not new. McLaren really has just retrofitted the theological liberalism of the past century to the present. And we see that even Jesus himself faced the same issues when the Sadducees tried to trip him up with a question to which he responded to them, you are in error because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus plainly tells them that their error was not knowing that the scripture, because it is God's word, is the very power of God. Didn't we hear that in the first session? If we don't have the word of God to give, we're powerless. We have nothing. Therefore, when we do not know and when we do not use the scripture, we do not avail ourselves of the power of God. Listen to me this morning, brethren. In the care of man's soul, to the extent that we rely on anything else, is the extent to which we will not know the power of God in caring for souls. To the extent that you listen to someone else, apart from your Bible, you will not know the power of God in having your own soul cared for. Jeremiah 23, 29, God asks through the prophet, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Be assured of this today as we sit here at this biblical counseling conference and we talk about the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God. Be assured of this today. Amid all the false teaching about the word of God, we know that God's word is powerful. It is powerful in preaching. It is powerful in teaching. And saints, it is powerful in counseling. Therefore, there is safety as we rest in the sufficiency of the scripture in the care of men's souls. Now, you, we have looked together at Psalm 1, and, and we can consider what the word of God says about itself here. And the dangers of not heeding to the counsel that the word of God gives And I just want to highlight this first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The entire book of Psalms is a book which celebrates the wonders of God's word. It's a book whose theme throughout tells us that there's really only one right way, and it is God's way. Clearly, it goes against the current thinking of our culture. You see, in our postmodernist thinking, we want numerous ways and we want many bits and pieces of truth from varied sources so that we can say that we have a more, quote, balanced approach as we deal both with our own souls and the souls of others. Our eggs, you see, aren't all in one basket. That's not wise, you see. And so we take bits and pieces and it's, you know, we could, and when I was younger, we called it cafeteria Christianity. And we just come with our tray to the scriptures and we take a little bit of mercy and we take a little bit of love and we take a little bit more of grace, but peas and carrots, we don't want any of that, especially the peas. So we think that we have to have a balanced approach. We're not going to put everything that we believe into one little basket. This is why the culture in which we live struggles with the concept of absolute right and wrong. I love it when people say to me, there are no absolutes. What? You're absolutely sure of that? Absolutely. We're told that we've got to appreciate other forms of truth today. 
Some views are better than others, but all are equally worthy and all are equally valid. You have your truth that you like to believe, and I have my truth that I like to believe. And so as we've said, we're seeing this type of thinking and compromise seeping into the body of the church. Nowhere is this more evident than in the soul care ministry. We're now told that there are more enlightened and medical ways to help people. We're further told that what the Bible calls sin are really the, are, are diseases. So that those who are struggling with depression and panic attacks and OCD and, and worry. By the way, my parents had a cure for ODD. I, I suffered with ODD when I was younger. And my, my parents said, a, we're all about an acronyms, right? We're all about acronyms. And my parents had a cure for my ODD. And it was a B-E-L-T. And it was a fast cure. Right? And so we're told that those uh, struggling with these, these aren't sins. These, these are medical diseases, et cetera, et cetera. The list could go on. And th- we need then additional help to, to help them apart from the scriptures. And we might, as we heard in the first session, include the scriptures. But we need more than the Bible gives to us. I mean, after all, we're 21st century people. We're so arrogant in the way that we approach the scriptures, aren't we? We're 21st century people, and our problems are much greater, much more significant than what Paul was addressing to those poor little Corinthians. I mean, we've got real problems today. We've got serious issues today. And so we're cautioned that we need the counseling wisdom of the world in order to counsel Christians. In fact, Christian psychologist and professor Dr. H. Newton Maloney states the common view today. He says, we can, and listen, we can and must draw from other non-biblical sources if we want to understand human beings and bring about maximum change through counseling. It's not just that we can. We must. We have to, to look at other sources. Your Bible isn't enough. Silly you to think so. We can and we must go from non-biblical sources. He also states the scriptures are certainly inadequate when it comes to understanding people. No wonder our brother would weep this morning. And it should bring us all to the verge of weeping when those who claim to follow Christ say that his word isn't enough or that we need more. And so, brethren, I want to assure you this morning that the Bible itself cuts through this false kind of thinking like a hot knife through butter. Psalm 1 especially cuts through this cultural relativism, showing us the progressive danger of leaving the counsel of the word of God. Let's see how. First of all, David begins with this term, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, appropriate, I think. I'm, I'm indebted to my study of Dr. Adams on some of this. Blessed is the man. In the Hebrew, we see the word for blessed can rightly be translated happy. So we might rightly say, happy is the man. Adams translate this, oh, the happinesses of the man. Another version, oh, very happy, how very happy is the man. So quoted to emphasize the abundance of multiplied blessings, happiness that comes to the righteous. John Calvin states the sum and substance is that they are blessed to apply their hearts, listen, to the pursuit of heavenly wisdom. Who's happy? Those who apply their hearts to the pursuit of heavenly wisdom. Wisdom, whereas the profane despisers of God, although for a time may reckon them reckon themselves to be happy, shall at length have a most miserable end. Do you desire to be happy? 
Do you desire to, to have those whom you're counseling to be happy? Who in the sanctuary would say no? No for me and a big no for the counselee. I certainly don't want them to be happy. Think back on all the things that you have chased after, the things that the world said you, you needed in order to make you happy, to make you blessed. Did they? Billions of dollars are spent yearly in this country alone on the pursuit of happiness, and yet some of the saddest people in the world are those who seem to have so much of what the world says should make them happy. All you have to do is stand in the grocery store and look at the covers of these magazines, right? People magazine and so forth and so on. You only need to watch the news and hear of the sad exploits of the rich and the famous. The fact is the true happiness, real happiness, the kind to which the psalmist refers, escapes most people. The term blessed or happy conveys the meaning of enjoying God's special favor and grace. With this definition, we see then that for the child of God, happiness is not derived from seeking continual events, but rather our happiness is derived from one single event, the life and the work of Jesus Christ who died upon Calvary, that he might restore our fellowship with the God of heaven. You see, man's biggest problem isn't that he isn't happy. Man's biggest problem is that he has a broken relationship to the God of heaven, which needs to be restored. It's through the fellowship in Christ's perfect life, his death upon the cross of Calvary, his resurrection and ascension from which real and true happiness comes. So true Christians derive all the happinesses of life as a result of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. In other words, God is the source of such happiness. Unlike many of the false religions then of our day, God wants you to know how you can truly be happy. It is through Jesus Christ. It's our privilege then in counseling to point the unconverted to Jesus Christ for salvation and to point the Christian to Jesus Christ for progressive spiritual growth. How does that happen? Well, the psalmist tells us he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. How does one attain the happinesses of which the psalmist speaks? Through proper counsel. We know generally that the word counsel means advice given towards some desired end. Here the psalmist starts out by telling us to watch out for the kind of counsel we both give, but for our purposes today, what, take, but what, watch out for the kind of counsel you give. Why? Because, brethren, now listen, there are only two kinds of counsel. There's God's counsel and every other form of counsel. There's no third kind. There's what God says which of course is right and true, sufficient and authoritative. And then there's everything else. Brethren, there really have only been two kinds of counsel from the beginning. God's counsel and the serpent's counsel. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. That's why I said to you, listen for the hiss of Satan's tongue in what Brian McLaren writes. Because Satan's attack has always been the same throughout the ages. And it is always to attack the word of God. Did God really say? Did God really say? And so what we see then for us is that there can be no mixture of the two. Adams correctly states, since the Bible is the standard of truth, then it must not be commingled with anything else. Upon mixing of the divine word with the human word, all becomes indistinct. Everything grows cloudy. All certainty is lost. 
the standard has been so weakened by the co-mingling process that the thinking Christian must conclude that this approach leaves him with no way of distinguishing God's truth from the devil's error. So the first question to ask, what is the source of the counsel which you are giving to others? What is the source of the counsel which you are giving to others? Only God's counsel is right, coming to us only through the special revelation of his word. Now, you need to think about that. As I say in our church, the question is not whether or not you will counsel. You will counsel. You counseled this week. I've had people come and say to me, oh, Pastor Don, I'm not a counselor. But you are a counselor. If you're a, a spouse, if you're a wife or a husband, you're a counselor. Honey, what do you think we should do about such? And you give an answer. Guess what that is? That's counsel. If you're a parent, you're a counselor. Mom, should I? And you say, well, you should. Well, guess what? You're counseling. If you have a, a family member call you and say, I'm not sure if we should this, 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 or we're thinking of putting this in, or our son is thinking about this school or whatever. And you say, oh, I would never send my son to that school. Guess what you've just done? You've counseled. So the question really is not for us, will we counsel? We, of course. The question for us is, how will we counsel? What is the source of our counsel? And that is the question that, that needs to be addressed. Because really only the counsel that God's word gives us is right counsel. And so we have to think that God has given to us that which we need to be trained up. I appreciated what uh, Dr. Lambert said last night. That the certification process is, is really... He didn't quite say it this way, but it's really that way that Paul tells to Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. That's why we encourage you in the certification process to go through ACBC and that certification process because it helps you to evidence that there's an approval of your competency. Yes, we're competent to counsel, but we need to sharpen that. And, and so we, we highly encourage you to get involved in the certification process and to go through the certification process because we all counsel. And so we have to be careful of the kind of counsel that we're giving. And so David says that our involvement with counsel whose source is not God is clearly wrong counsel. You don't want to give wrong counsel. You wouldn't be here if you wanted to give wrong counsel. But we have to be mindful of our temptation to doubt, as we'll see even in the counsel that we're giving. So we want you to be confident that God's counsel is right towards the sinner who stands apart from Jesus Christ. We want you to be confident that God's counsel is right to the Christian who is tempted to take the answers of the world regarding his spiritual issues. And again, I remind you, we only have two choices, God or the devil. It's that simple and it's that hard. It's God's counsel or it's the devil's counsel. There is no mixture of the two. So the psalmist then goes on to help us to see the dangers here of both giving bad counsel and taking bad counsel. And for our purposes today, let's consider the danger of giving bad counsel. For as biblical counselors, we must be convinced in the sufficiency of God's word in all the areas of our counsel. So what does David warn us about? Well, first of all, he warns us about walking in the counsel of the ungodly. What does it mean to walk in such counsel? It means that even as biblical counselors, we must avoid the temptation of thinking that there is 
listen to this word, that there is the potential for the word of God not to be sufficient in some area so that we would maintain a continued interest in the world's counsel with a just-in-case mindset. Right? We have to avoid that. I remember long ago talking to Dr. Robert Smith, who's been here and has spoken at these BCI conferences and and asking him a question or two. And I'll never forget the answer he gave to me. This is probably 15 years or more ago, and I'll not forget the answer. He said, I will refuse to counsel people based on the potential that the word of God may be wrong. I'll refuse to counsel people based on the potential that medicine or science might prove the word of God wrong. And so that's simple, but it's good, isn't it? So listen, if the Bible calls homosexuality a sin, it's not genetic. It's a sin. And we're not going to counsel on the potential that there may be some study which comes out later to, to tell us that there's some genetic composition to this. We don't have to be afraid of that, do you hear me? We don't have to be afraid of that. We're not going to counsel based on the potential that the word of God might be wrong. It might be insufficient. We don't have to have a just-in-case mindset. But how would it look for someone who does? Well, in our walking, as the psalmist described, we're walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? In our walking, whether through academic articles, through conferences, through professors, through theologians, through books, etc., 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 a counseling paradigm whose source is not grounded in the sufficiency of God's word, and we're walking in that. What happens? Well, we just want to keep our eyes open. We just want to keep ourselves just in case. And we begin then to find such counsel interesting. So what do we do? We slow our walk down and we listen to it a little bit more closely. And we, and, and we say, well, this is just to be well-informed counselors, you see. And in so doing, we begin to identify with something that we're hearing. It begins to pique our interest. It perhaps plants a seed of doubt in us about the word of God. What happens? We begin to walk even more slowly as we take in the counsel of the ungodly. And we tell ourselves that this is really just in order to help us to more biblically counsel. And the result We stand in the path of sinners. By walking in the counsel of the ungodly, we've become so interested in what we've seen and heard that now we've stopped and we're actually standing in the path of sinners. We desire to find out more and begin to willingly soak ourselves in and meditate on what we're hearing. We like it. It smells good. We take in this counsel and taste it and we process it, and it tastes good too, and it makes us look smart, and it makes us look popular with the world, and we've got some academic credence with people. We don't look like silly people who say, take two verses and call me in the morning. We look intelligent, and we like it. So we're we're not walking anymore. We're standing still. In the pathway of sinners. Now we're captivated by what we hear. So much so that it has stopped us in our tracks. We don't want to concentrate on walking anymore. We just want to stand. And we just want to listen to what's being said. The result? We sit in the seat of the scornful. We settle on the council. We've now come to believe it. 
to support it. And we'll even defend it. We've actually become comfortable enough to sit amongst those who are openly against God's counsel. In short, brethren, what we see happening is that we give in. We give in. Now, I ask you this morning, is that a possibility even for biblical counselors? Well, the answer is yes. If we don't think so, remember that pride comes before the fall. The devil is not content, brethren. The devil is not content to have an army of biblically trained counselors who are committed to the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God. The devil hates it. And he will do all that he can to diminish our number. What greater way would the devil be able to do that than by getting those of us who claim to believe these things, by getting us to doubt God's word ourselves? What better way can the devil do it than by getting those who are supposed to stand for the magnificence of the word of God and the majesty of the word of God to tell us that God's word isn't about giving to us statements. God's word is about a conversation so that we can argue about who God is and what he says. What? What better way for the devil to infiltrate a movement that God has clearly started, that God is in because it highlights his word, than for the devil to get us to doubt the word of God, to walk, to stand, and to sit under counsel that isn't godly. We need to be careful. We need to be careful to avoid the temptation that is there. Not to look like simpletons to the world because we cling to the word. And that's there. I know that's there. I'm not as smart as most of you. But I'll tell you this. I've had people say to me, you cannot be such a mental midget as to believe that the word of God will deal with these things. I can because as our brother said in the first session, I've seen with my own eyes God raise the spiritually dead and give them life. I've seen with my own eyes what the world says that could never be changed, could never be solved. I've seen God do it with my own eyes and to Christ Jesus be the praise. Because that's the God we serve. We have to be careful, brethren, of this temptation that's there for us. We want to look smart. We want to look intelligent. And we just don't look intelligent. We come in and say, I believe in the word of God. And we say, listen, greater men than me have died for the simple statement that this is God's word and there is no other. God, help us to stand on this word. It's a temptation for us because if I lose sight of the fact that Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that all behavior flows from the heart, And in the counseling session then, if I'm doubting, if I'm doubting what the word of God says, all behavior flows from the heart? 
Now, you just need to meditate on that. I've thought about that statement a lot. Matthew 15, 19, and what we see in Mark chapter 7, I say to our church this, this simple phrase, the simplicity of my Bible helps me with the complexities of life. Why do I do the things that I do? Well, the heart is the fountain, Jesus says, from which all behaviors flow. We do that because it's what comes from our heart. But you see, if we're tempted to doubt that as biblical counselors, and in the counseling session, I skip over pre-evangelism and do not deal with the gospel need of the counselee who sits in front of me and instead begin to deal behavioralistically with the counselee, the doctrine of election notwithstanding, the results can be manifold and eternally damning. Brethren, there's much bad counsel concerning the souls of men today. And there are many who give the kind of ungodly counsel which damns people to an eternity in hell. That should make us weep. May we as biblical counselors never be among those who do such because we've grown to doubt the sufficiency of the word of God. Let us be sure that we never surrender in the giving of the gospel to the broken and the hurting. May we always remember that when God sovereignly brings an unbeliever to us for counsel, we have the wonderful privilege, and it is, to do pre-evangelism counseling, to point them to the power of the cross, to show the sin broken and hurting, that they can be brought to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. What greater privilege is there than that? I've seen more people come to a saving faith in Christ Jesus as a result of the counseling ministry than as a result of the preaching ministry. says less about my preaching than I'd like, but... I asked Dr. Adams that question once. Why is that the case? Why is it that, that we see more, in the, and this is what breaks my heart, that pastors don't get involved in biblical counseling. Pastors who desire to see pe- people come to Christ... There's no greater way to do that than like Jesus does with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He meets her right where she is. And I, I said to Dr. Adams, why is that the case? He said, I'll tell you why that's the case. Because when people come to counseling, they're ready. Now, what a shame. If I begin to doubt the word of God and do not give to them the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm doubting if this behavior is really a sin or if this is the issue. Against all the Christless counsel of the world today, let us lovingly urge those counselees who come to see us, let us urge them to confess that they are sinners, to ask God for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, to not trust any longer in the counsel of the world. Be assured there is safety and blessing in such counsel because it's grounded in the sufficiency of God's word. In counseling, Christians sitting in the seat of the scornful can be seen by subtly following the counsel of the world instead of the direct counsel of the scriptures and the way that we're encouraged to encourage people to live. For example, perhaps a Christian wife wants to leave her husband, not for any biblical reason, 
but only because she says she, she doesn't love him anymore and he doesn't treat her the way that she deserves to be treated. And, and her family tells her to get out. She, she remembers that her mother told her not to marry that jerk and, and said that she was too good for him anyway. And, of course, her friends, most of them who are unsaved, her friends tell her to leave him and he doesn't deserve her. And after all, a good number of them have left their own husbands for the very same reason. And, and why shouldn't she? Because she deserves to be happy. She watched a woman on Dr. Phil who was in the very same place and Dr. Phil told that woman to leave her husband because she deserved to be happy. So why not me, she says to herself. And she comes to see you for counsel and you yourself have just finished reading a book on marriage whose source is not solely grounded in the word of God, perhaps a book which speaks about the importance of having felt needs met and and having our empty love reservoirs filled. And you appropriately feel for her plight, as you should, but because you have a seed of doubt, you do not guide her to see what the scriptures say about marriage and divorce. Rather, you equivocate. And you say that God will give her wisdom in in what to do, but that you know certainly there's one thing that's clear. He wants you to be happy. So why not giving her your stamp of approval? She senses that you do not disagree with her. And she moves ahead in leaving her husband. Why? Because as her biblical counselor, you have allowed yourself to walk, stand, and sit under the counsel of the ungodly. There's no guarantee of safety in the counsel of those who do so apart from the scripture. Unbiblical counsel, there is no safety. But brethren, there is safety in the sufficiency of the word of God as we counsel. Now lastly, let's just see the ungodly crowd that David describes, the very groups of people that are mentioned in this verse. The wicked, a general term for all unbelievers, it's sometimes translated as the ungodly. Sinners, the more notorious people, these sin in ways that stand out more. They may encourage others to sin with them, but not necessarily be mocking towards God in that encouragement. And thirdly, the scorners and the scoffers. This group not only sins, but they mock God and his word and all those who follow him. These are the ones who will say that Christianity is repressive and narrow-minded and even bigoted. They will use their own perceived intellectual prowess to malign anyone who puts their faith in what the Bible says. You know the sort, Christopher Hitchens kinds of people, right? Whether it's in the matters of creation, salvation, or, or counsel. I would warn that this is exactly the foundation which is the counseling of the world is built upon. The musings of the wicked and of sinners and of scorners and of scoffers. Consider this statement regarding the father of modern psychology. Freud offered a conception of mankind, his problems and their resolution that appeared far more attractive than what the scripture offered. He offered a purely man-centered redemption. His psychoanalysis required no burdensome concept of sin, and it certainly released mankind from the requirement of atonement for his sin and for any need for submission before a holy God. The modern church has accepted Darwin's and Freud's ideas as truth. With that acceptance, the simple message of the gospel and the offense of the cross have been supplanted by systems of thought that seem so much better and so much deeper. Freud asserted throughout his career that man is basically a socialized animal. He is not responsible for his actions. So says Dr. Almy. 
Remember the psalmist's words to us? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Remember that there are only two sources of counsel, one which flows solely from God and one which flows from the deceptive serpent. There is no mixing of the two. One will naturally be supplanted by the other. Sadly, all too often in the church today, there are constant attempts to mix the two. More sadly, in such mixing, it is the Bible which is supplanted by the worldly counsel of Freud et al. Consider this quote from a Christian psychologist as given by John Street in his book, Think Biblically. Despite its wealth of information about human beings, their universe, and their God, the Bible is not intended to be a psychological textbook. The Bible does not tell us about the developmental stages of infancy, the fine points of conflict resolution, or the ways to treat dyslexia or paranoia. Psychology focuses on issues like these. And another who says, I know it sounds unscriptural to say that some individuals need more than the church can offer, but if my car needs the transmission replaced, do I expect the church to do it? Or if I break my leg, do I consult my pastor about it? For some reason, when it comes to emotional needs, we think the church should be able to meet them all. It can't and it's not supposed to. This is just a sampling of what is out there which tells us that the Bible is not enough and it's not sufficient. Dear saints of God, There has always been one consistent target of the enemy. It's God's word. As those who profess to counsel from the word, be careful. Be careful not to walk, stand, or sit under any other counsel. Psalm 33, 11, we read the counsel of the Lord stands forever. This counsel is found in the word of God. It is the counsel which is true. It is the counsel which will lead to salvation. It is the counsel which will make one blessed, which is powerful. Our counsel will always be safe when it's grounded in the sufficiency of God's word. As Tim Challies rightly states in response to McLaren's new book, the Bible insists that it is the living, active word of God, breathed out by God himself. It is not man-made document subject to error, evolution, antiquation, or reinterpretation. Jesus himself spoke clearly about the authority and the relevance of Scripture and showed no hesitation in unfolding its meaning and faulted others for misunderstanding it. In Mark 12, 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so, as a biblical counselor, pray that God keeps you from the ever-subtle temptations of the enemy in thinking that the word of God is not sufficient. Always be sure to claim the second verse that we read here in Psalm chapter 1 in your counseling. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. An unknown writer has said that the Bible is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design. The glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, it will lead you to glory itself for all eternity. And God's people said... 
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the precious word of God. Help us to magnify your word as you yourself magnify it. Cause us to be passionate for the things of Christ and his word. And we'll give you the thanks as we stand in a day which hates your word. Let us be known as those who ever love and ever promote and ever hold forth the word of God. Make us like David Livingston. Let us throw every other book away, but never our Bibles, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.